Hey guys, this is Matt Pandola with your Relative Run Readiness Podcast. I am here with the very pretty and sexy Ryan Golick. Ryan, he's been on the podcast a few other times, but more with Pandola Project Podcast, which of course you can still get to those podcasts. It's on the same site, but we are talking all about running now. And I decided to have Ryan back in so we could talk about how our core affects and relates to our running gait. Ryan, how are you today, brother? I'm good. I'm good. I feel like a recording artist every time I come in here. <laughs> I believe the children are our future. <laughs> Teach them well and let them lead the way. Oh, so, boy. Yeah, excited to be back on. Excited to talk about things and stuff and, uh, you know, listen to myself talk. Yeah, you're not just pretty, you're funny too. You might know a thing or two about function and what's relative. And if you guys have listened to Ryan before, you know that he does know what he's talking about. I hate to admit it, you know, but um, I mean, I, you know, I, I definitely think that Ryan is one of the better strength coaches out there. I give full credit to him there, but I don't like to give him too much credit because, you know, he already has his head pretty big. So yeah, we're going to. I'm really good. All right. So what are we talking about and why? Well, let me just start off with why we have trunk work or core work or ab work in our training. Now, I'll get to the ab work in a second, right? Because there are no absolutes. Get it? And it's not just the abs. Get it? And we can talk a little bit more with Ryan about why we train the abs and how we train the abs more uh, isotonically or more focused on just those muscles, but then how and why we would start to do more compound movements to integrate better performance. So it's not just black or white. There are some things that we do want to work on with a little bit more focus for spinal flexion, for example, but we do want to make sure we are integrating the right patterns and the right programming. So uh, first of all, Ryan, I know when you are a young man and you want to train those abs to be even somehow sexier than you are, there's a lot of focus on doing your crunches or doing some sort of work that I think back then we all thought would really make our aesthetics that much better, even though I have to admit back then, I didn't think as much about abs being cooked in the kitchen as I realized they are now. And I would do a lot of ab work to, to really get that, that beach body look and not really understanding that it wasn't contributing to a better running gait. In fact, it might have been taking away from some of my running gait. It might've actually had some negative effects to it. So let's talk a little bit about the trunk. Let's talk trunk training, Ryan. What do you think about training your trunk in your 20s versus today? I think that's a good way to start this. Well, I think the word that you use that I've kind of swapped out in my own world for this functional concept is this integration. And core training, again, you you differentiate it, right? You have ab training because they're abdominal muscles. And then you have, depends on where you want to get your research from, but you have 
pillar strength or you have cylinder strength or you have hydraulic amplifier mechanism just because it sounds real sexy to say, you know, inner abdominal pressure, whatever the word is, what you're looking for is this quality to be able to stiffen through the middle and irradiate energy to the limbs. And a lot of the research will say that if you can create center tension, or if you can create this kind of pillar strength or whatever term you want to use, that tension and stability gives freedom to the joints surrounding it. So a lot of people with tight hips have weak core. When we're in our 20s, well, can you stop there a second? You just, you just said something that to me was gold and people, they, they need to understand this. How many times have you as a strength coach and you've been a strength coach as long as I have, we've been both cracking away at this for 20 years, right? So collectively 40 years of experience about and saying this, that stretching, it's not that it's bad, okay? Or I don't think of stretching as a bad thing, but it's not going to address the problem in most cases where we're looking at a weaker area from our core, or in other words, taking that concept of a nice, strong, stable core that does have stability as a factor, but I almost never hear about the mobility part of it, right? And when we address these strengths through the core, through stability, that allows for better mobility, which equals our ability to be able to run with more efficiency. So let, let, let's just talk about that for just a second, because I love what you said. I, I just, how many times though, Ryan, have you seen people stretching and stretching and stretching and they're just, they, they always are tight and they're tight and they're tight and they're tight and day after day, week after week, month after month. And then they're still stretching and thinking that that's going to change things for them, right? Yeah. So I think that there's actually two pieces to that. There are the people that are systemically tight. You would, you would do an assessment on a range of motion and you would see that they don't have what they should have. And then you have the people that have this conscious tightness where they believe they're so restricted. And then you do a test on them and they're so hypermobile in that direction that you just look at them and be like, what are you, what are you thinking? And I have seen both sides of that. And I have a client recently that for about two weeks, of course, without telling me has had this left-sided groin pain. And one day, a couple of weeks, she goes, how do I stretch this front area? And I go, I, you know, I was working with another client at the same time. So I just said, you know, you get into this half kneeling position, squeeze your glutes, drive your hips forward. So fast forward two weeks and she's like, yeah, this pain is still really there. And I've been stretching and stretching and stretching. And I go, well, my theory is always this. If you work on an area and it's not feeling better, go directly to the opposite side of that. So you can either look at if it's a left groin, you could look at mobility of the right groin, or if it's a left groin, you could look at mobility of the left hip. And all of a sudden, and I go, go, spend two minutes foam rolling your left glute. And then we're going to do a activation drill of the groin. So we, she was doing a hex bar deadlift at the time. I had her squeeze a yoga block between her knees when she did it. Set of five reps came out 90% pain relief. And 
people don't, people look at that like you're some voodoo magician, but the reality is, is that tension is held because it's protecting the system. So if my body is not stupid, your body is not stupid. Someone's body might be stupid, but I don't know who they are. <laughs> but we're just, we tend to overthink our own instincts. So our body is sitting there holding on to something. And I think you'd probably agree the hamstring is a big, is a big one of these because the nerve line is one of the biggest nerve lines. That sciatic nerve line is, is huge. And if you don't have good hamstring strength and you don't have good hinging, your body will hold on to that hamstring. So then what does everyone feel? They're like, oh, my hamstrings are so tight. And then I lay down and I grab the back behind my knee and I straighten my leg out and it just doesn't get any better. And you have to look at that and go, well, why? And, uh, you know, a friend of mine that was a manual therapist for a very long time, John, he was, you know, when he, when he realized that manual therapy was not the end all be all of improving someone's motion, because someone said, well, if you keep releasing them and they keep getting tight again, then why do you believe that that's worth doing anything? It brings new awareness to this concept. So people that are like you're saying foam rolling and stretching for 45 minutes, and then they do a 20 minute workout might feel great for five minutes but are they reinforcing what they did on the floor? Are they thinking, oh, I just got all this range of motion. Now I'm going to go beat myself up in all the wrong ways and just put myself back. So this concept, I know that in, in the notes you have this too, this idea of what's called reciprocal inhibition, right? If I'm super tight in my hip flexor and I'm able to squeeze my glute, which is on the opposite side, and I'm able to create tension then my brain will say, well, I can't hold tension on both sides. So I'm going to let go of where my brain's doing it because consciously I'm squeezing something else. So if you're able to couple that with maybe some sort of neurological release, foam rolling or something that allows the brain to say, okay, calm this down. Great. Oh, active. Oh, I don't know what that feels like. This is good. I like this. I'm now stabilizing on this side. I don't have to work so hard on the other side magically your range of motion just normalizes doesn't have to be ideal but it's just got to normalize you have to have an equal amount of ability from one side to the other because symmetry whether you're 20 years old and you want to step on a bodybuilding stage or if you want to foot strike evenly on your left and right when you're running matters and as much as all those people out there now are like, oh, you know, symmetry is really not relative. You train where you are and your body is what it is and you can adapt. If you want to be an elite anything, the closer you are to symmetric and how you move is going to create power. It's going to create longevity and it's going to create performance that you need. Yeah. No, that's so talking about reciprocal inhibition for a second. I, I'll do one of the tests that we'll give, and uh, shameless plug, but it's in our program, guys, is a- Pandola Project. Pandola Project. No, it's <laughs> Relative Run Readiness is the name of the program, Ryan. Get it right, okay? It's on the Pandola Project website. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, no, but guys, uh, in all seriousness, you do um, a leg lift test, right? So you might do something where you're- you're si you're seated and you have your legs straight out in front of you. You have your back up against the wall. So you can't round your back. Essentially, you have 
good extension through your spine and then you lift one leg up at a time. Now we, we might look at that as just one of the self-assessments that somebody does and we might see that on their left side that they can only hold the position for maybe 10 to 15 seconds whereas on the right side they can hold say for 50 seconds or a minute, right? We see we see those kind of asymmetries. Now, um, when we do something that's a little bit more, to me, relative for increasing capacity, we could go into, say, a single leg hip thrust where you're elevated, right? So you're, you're heels on the bench, and now you are doing a hip thrust with um, a little bit of a break in the knee at the bottom where your butt's touching, but when you thrust up, you extend your knee, you go to terminal knee extension, hip extension, and you might say do that for a series of uh, sets and weeks and accumulate a little bit more that way in that capacity. So to me, that's just an example about how we can start to educate our clients on, on how they can address these inhibitions and also how they can get to proper training for these inhibitions. Um, and depending on the client, again, you know, some people we have to go into maybe a slippery ham floor slide where they go into a glute bridge and we just work on the eccentric with two legs in the beginning. You know, it depends on the history and depends on um, the, the, their current capabilities, things like that. But point is, I want to get that as a main focus and more of that um, straight leg position versus doing, let's say, getting on uh, a hamstring curl machine and thinking that that is going to correct the problems. Now, um, one thing that I will test for, though, is can we now um, touch our toes, right? Can Or can we get lower towards the ground? And I've yet to be um, to wrong on this one. In other words, we always increase our range with uh, that type of progression. And sometimes we even see it, that range change even on the same day, which is that that means that we're also dealing with a little bit more nervous system. Um, I believe in what you were referring to before, Ryan, is what uh, the brain is perceiving and even guarding, right? Um, do you want to talk at all about that or any examples in your mind about, about that? Yeah. So, it's interesting when you're talking about that straight leg test, because we just went through last week in our trainer education, uh, I took everyone through the relevance of the functional movement screen straight leg test. And th for those that are familiar, functional movement screens, Gray Cook came out with is a seven point examination looking at basic movement patterns and then trying to red flag areas of concern. Wait a minute. I thought I came up with that move. No, you've got what you've got run readiness guys. We were just talking run before about program. the trainer. We both started off with that claimed that he kind of invented every movement you ever heard of, but uh, all right, back to, back to the truth. You here. invented the seated one, Matt. That's my, you, truth. you made it better. <laughs> uh, but what was interesting is that I have kind of, we all go through our waves, right? I discounted that test for a long time because when we scale our assessments for our basic clientele, we want to get the most bang for our buck. So for a handful of our younger trainers, and I suggest to them, I say, do a free evaluation, pick two, two assessments and take a look. And we usually default to, you know, a, probably a Thomas test, which is a look at 
passive hip flexion or hip extension and an overhead squat. Do those really tell you a whole lot? Maybe, maybe not, but it gives someone a sense of awareness that you're actually looking and you're concerned. But I had always kind of pushed the straight leg test to the wayside because in my mind, I've always been thought, okay, well, if we load hamstrings in a hinge motion, right? RDL is a Romanian deadlift or straight leg dead or whatever, stiff leg dead, whatever you want to call it, usually elicits over time, a lengthening of the hamstring. And what was interesting is that I started thinking, okay, well, how much mobile, like someone that can hinge really well, but doesn't have an active hamstring range of motion reciprocally, right? They're not using the rec fem, they're not using the hip flexor, they're not using uh, the abdominals to see what an actual range of motion of the hamstring is. There can still be underlying issues that that are existing at the pelvis, say SI joint, something like that, by not having that active range. And I took a couple of our trainers that have a really strong hinge that couldn't raise their leg 45 degrees. And it's just this underlying tension being held in the hamstring because there is some sort of signal to the brain saying, I'm the one that has to do all the work. I am going to hold on for dear life. So getting to the core concept, the other thing that the floor does is that turns the core off for the most part. So if I'm a really proficient hinger and those of you that have any sort of um, background in strength training understand what a hinge or a Romanian deadlift looks like. You're basically standing up, you're holding a bar, dumbbell or something by your legs. You soften the knees, you drive the hips straight back, straight spine, you reach down, hit the end range of your hamstrings, you come up. It's a really great glute hamstring developer. But that becomes positional. So I can become very, very strong at that. And I am cheating. And if I'm symptomatic in my hip here or there, I don't think about it because I go, my hamstring range is great. My RDL looks great. But this concept of a radiation, when I'm doing an RDL, I have to stay tight through the, the pillar or the column or whatever, or the trunk or whatever we want to call it, or else I just round over. So I have this already based irradiation. I use the term irradiation a lot, but basically it's this idea that if I create tension somewhere, that creates a push of energy out towards the limbs and allows motion. So when I'm looking at a straight leg raise on the floor or a back supported seated straight leg raise, I don't require any core in that position. I'm supported. My The floor tells me, cool, you're right here. So the only thing I need to use when I'm raising my leg straight up is that rec fem hip flexor complex, mm -hmm. especially if you do anything to try to neutralize the spine. Like if you don't flat, if you're not trying to flatten out the spine and create that abdominal flexion. So when I look at that, I go, okay, well that to me matters because if all I'm doing is cheating the system because I am using my core, is there a problem that's going to show up in performance when I take that component away? So there's a, this idea of isolation, which a lot of your, uh, do you want to do a shameless plug on your self-assessment? <laughs> I think I've done enough shameless plugs, but, but we're talking about run uh, readiness. things like the run readiness. 
it's it's like things like the four core we call it where you are starting off in bridge positions what i'll say very quickly is like prone bridge supine bridge frontal plane like lateral line doing those bridges in the beginning i like to just stick with the basics and learn how to breathe in those positions and hold them for um a static or isometric hold for you know, a minute or so and, and building up to that. And then I actually like to work towards increasing more tension and getting to the point where maybe you're actually only holding for 20 seconds, what with max intensity. In other words, learning to get more torque, learning to get more tension. And that's super important. And to me, then you start going into more of the asymmetrical type of patterns after that. And I was going to ask you, when I say asymmetrical patterns, guys, um, what I'm talking about is then you would start to say move an arm and the opposite leg in these plank positions. I, I don't believe in like, I'm going to hold a plank for 15 minutes now because my last progression I held for 10 minutes. You know, that's there's a tipping point to me where we got to move on and that's part of progressive overload. But also, I just believe that at a certain point, you're just putting a lot of stress into your uh, into your hips and into your back that doesn't need to be there because you're holding positions for much longer than you really need to make it harder. Move on. Right. And literally start moving. Get it. Move on. Right, Ryan. It's not and, good. And it's and also, I, I don't want to watch. Uh, I don't want to watch you do RDLs. I just wanted to point that out. I never. I've never Me? watched you do or RDLs. You you don't want to see my RDLs or your clients' RDLs. I I watch my wife's okay. RDLs. Those okay, are, those very are good nice. to watch. Yes, yeah, very nice. <laughs> so, um, you know what? I I I look at things because we've kind of talked around the idea of core, right? But when Thinking about that RDL concept, and I'm I'm looking. Two of our trainers are, uh, hopefully, they're not listening because I really don't like to give them any credit. But they're actually reasonable athletes. Um, when they do a hinge, they're really pretty good at being able to brace. And this concept of bracing has different connotations depending on your sport. I have done some work in the powerlifting world and this idea of bracing is just creating this mass amount of cylindrical pressure, this billowing out and tensing of the entire abdominal complex. And for those of you that don't know how complex that whole structure is, it's not just your ab muscles that you see or don't see in my case. Um, <laughs> there's it's a, it's a structure. It's a layered structure. So you have this transverse abdominus, this deep abdominal muscle. You have these internal obliques that run one direction. You have these external obliques that run another direction. Then you have your rectus femoris, or your rectus femoris, your uh, rectus muscles that come down the center. And then you have the whole backside, right? So then you have your multifidus as your primary stabilizers. You got your QL. Then you can even get into this concept of diaphragm and pelvic floor. And all of that stuff has to integrate together to optimize the ability for your trunk to stabilize. But we can't just throw ourselves to that because there's so much structure in there that if you just go, okay, get tight, right? Flex, you're going to flex what works and you're going to not flex what doesn't. And some people might be really functionally sound and go, as soon as I get tight, everything works. You know, that pelvic floor gets tight. That diaphragm locks me into position. Those abdominals are feeling great. Most people are not that good. Most people are screwed up. So we have to start with this isolated position. How can I create, and you're not going to isolate a muscle. 
just not going to do it. But how can I get my deep stabilizers? How can I understand my diaphragm's role? How can I understand the pelvic floor, which some people consider its own version of a diaphragm? Uh, how can I get my deep stabilizers, my internal obliques and my uh, transverse abdominis and multifidus to fire without over flexing? Then if I can just get my brain to turn those on, then I integrate my system and I go, okay, I build up tension. I build up this idea of pillar stability by default. I don't need to billow out and flex really hard when I'm running or else I'm probably going to pass out in the first three steps, which if you don't want to run the race is probably a good way to get out of it. But outside of that, you have to have this base level of intrinsic stability first. And that's going to come from understanding where the pelvis is, understanding where the rib cage is, and then understanding how those deep stabilizers work independent of that abdominal flexion. So when you're talking about in our 20s with our crunches, it was aesthetic. You didn't need a deep abdominal, you didn't need your transverse abdominus to work unless you wanted to do a hollowing belly roll on stage, you know? What you did was you did a bunch of crunches because you wanted that six pack to pop out. You wanted that six pack to be an eight pack. When you're a runner, I'm sure that just like any sport, you get in the locker room, there's got to be a little bit of shirt off ego, right? But when it comes down to it, how I move on a track or how I move on a course is going to matter as to whether or not I can maintain breathing, right? I can maintain a relative stiffness in the spine, lower spine, to elicit freedom of motion at the other joints and performance. And if you don't teach that, which is a lot of what your base core non-flexion extension dominant patterns and these progressive stability drills and hip extensions and these things where everything around there were teaching how to work in symmetry if that doesn't work, you're going to bleed energy. You're going to be overworking something. You're going to be underworking other things and you're going to end up hurt at some point or you're going to cost yourself performance, which the people that are going to sign up for the run readiness program <laughs> are going to want to be at their performing at their highest level. And they're going to want to take where they are now and be higher than that. And it needs to be understood that you can't just go out and run and expect that your body is just going to naturally forest gump itself across the US. Right. No, and I like what we're talking about here because I often talk about in control, ready to roll as, as something that I like to, to think as a self-affirmation out there running and I'm in control of my breathing, I'm in control of my stability, I'm in control obviously of my abilities, right? So th this is something that even with the core conversation, we are talking about essentially being in control, ready to roll without having the de defaults or without having um, the energy leaks or, or bleeding energy like you talked about. But one thing I wanted to cover with you, Ryan, I think is a common misconception about whether or not we should be doing general physical preparation or specific physical preparation. So in other words, if it doesn't look like running, some people don't think they should be doing it, right? So I'll do core work, 
but it needs to be, it needs to look like running. It needs to mimic running. And I'm just basically seeing people adding some light dumbbells or even heavy dumbbells. Um, and then they're essentially doing running gait type of movements, which it, that can be part of the process, but further on down the line for a lot of people, that's more of that integration where um, I don't believe in going too heavy with the dumbbells, by the way, but doing some box drills or doing some things where we're working on step ups that that look more like running and that integrate that, those performance patterns. That's great. But the original goal to me um, that we that we had as strength coaches was to develop better capacity and develop coordination, develop a good strength base. And I feel like what's happened to that? You know, we, we went from just doing crunches to saying, OK, well, that's, uh, you know, doing doing sit ups is out. And, and almost like sometimes I've actually had people telling me like doing some kind of a flexion movement. Right. So where they are doing abdominal uh, flexion and they don't think that they should be doing like anything that's maybe uh, even looking like a sit up anymore where I say, okay, no, look, it's not that so much. Like I, I'll do, for example, a PVC pipe, you hold in your hands and you are working on getting your hips to posteriorly um, uh, rotate. Right. And so when we look at that uh, posterior pelvic tilt, sorry, is what I was thinking of. And when you look at that position, we're now getting the hips up off of the ground, like show me your butt, right? If you imagine that. And then you're trying to get the PVC pipe up to get over your toes into your arches. So that's like a Mike Boyle type of, um, he called it the, I think the PVC perfect crunch or something. And that's, you know, spinal flexion, that's global spinal flexion. So we look at something like that and we say, okay, that is going to be part of the capacities that we are building on. We also are going to maybe do some pull-ups with full spinal extension in the pull-up, right? And we're also going to add in some other movements where we get lateral flexion, etc. But th this idea that these movements have to look like running Otherwise, it's no good, like it won't work because it's not relative to running is so silly. One of the things that I was discussing, I think it's um, it's a good topic to talk about with uh, with Gwen Jorgensen was just being able to do push ups. And she's like, um, just wanted to understand why, which is great. You know, why do I need to be able to do push ups as a as a runner? Right. Um, I'm not going to be running with both of my 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 palms uh, pushing out in front of me. Right. At, and if anything, I'm pulling one arm back at the same time. I'm getting the other arm to go forward. Right. Obviously. Well, because when we have more bilateral work, especially in the beginning and developing a good strength base and developing that coordination, um, that, for example, will help over rotation of the of the spine, especially the thoracic spine for her arms in that running gait pattern. So it doesn't have to look just like running for it to be effective. In fact, we can't or shouldn't, in my opinion, skip a lot of these bread and butter movements that are bilateral that we can benefit from, I think, even more so because it allows us to get more repetitions in to increase that coordination and to find that base of strength where our spine does want to have stability and we have to keep a long, strong head to heel, strong as steel spine position. 
And then as we go along in our training, now we can start to work on movements that are coordinated to look a little bit more like running. Sure. So what's your opinion on that, Ryan? Because um, that's kind of a hot topic lately uh, with coaches I'm talking to. Well, let me organize the thoughts in my very cluttered brain. Uh, my, my cluttered way of uh, bringing. Yeah, I, yeah, I know I go. bring up a lot okay, of stuff. Well, there's fifteen thousand points there. Let me get to one. Um, <laughs> so, first thought when we talk about spinal flexion, the interesting thing that is relevant now for is crunches to crunch. Right, you were crunching to shorten the abdominals to hypertrophy the abdominals to make them look aesthetically pleasing, and then people went. Don't do any spinal flexion, just stability work, planks and side planks and hip bridges. And, uh, you know, that's it. And then you started to look and say, well, the spine is designed to flex and extend and side bend and rotate and move in these different ways. Cause those facet joints all move in their own independent way. And there's a whole bunch of vertebrae back there. So if I'm not flexing my spine, and I'm not extending my spine in certain areas, I'm going to create this shortened effect. Just like if I'm sitting at a desk all day long, my hip flexors are not getting so strong that they're shortened. They're just shortening because I'm in that position a lot. So this idea of using crunches or segmental sit-ups or Jefferson curls, which is basically standing at upright, straight-legged, and then rounding your spine into a toe touch. You are using the abdominals in this flexion concept, but you are doing it in order to facilitate better movement. When we talk about bilateral versus unilateral, and I will preface this with, I obviously don't work with the elite level runners that you do. I have a handful of my clients that do run even in a somewhat competitive capacity. And then I have some that do not, but what we need to understand in general human function, no matter what age you are, gait patterning, whether it's walking or running is it's fundamental. If you don't walk, you're not going to get around, right? How many older people get to the point where they're shuffling their feet or they're in a walker or they're committing themselves to be in a position where they no longer can walk because they chose at some point to just stop moving in the right ways. That's accusational. I mean, obviously there are things that cause that right pain or discomfort, but a lot of times they just, your body stopped moving. We stopped treating it like a runner would treat their body. So a lot of the regressed patterns or the strength type of stuff that I will use does mimic running. And what I mean by that is that I do a lot of things that will utilize what I is called the cross crawl pattern. And a cross crawl pattern means that when we're developing as babies, we crawl. And when we crawl, we learn how to connect the left side of our upper body to the right side of our lower body and vice versa. So when I am crawling across the floor, I am moving my left knee and my right hand and then my right, my left hand and my right knee. And that is the foundational beginning of walking and then eventually running. So we have these different things. I have people crawl 
all the time in a little bit more challenging functional way where they have to float their knees off the ground. But it's about maintaining stable position and then moving in this cross crawl pattern. I have people do a lot of half kneeling positions, which is one knee on the, which is basically the bottom of a lunge, right? I put one knee forward, one knee back. And if I have a unilateral drill, typically I am using the back leg arm, which would mean that the forward knee is working with the opposite arm. So whether it's cable push pull, whether it's an overhead press, whether it's a pal off hold, right? Which is just a, a lateral stabilization drill, a rotational stabilization drill. I'll put people in those cross crawl patterns or a bird dog row or something like that to integrate the system. But again, we're talking about integration. So if I have someone that gets into a plank and they're massively tilted forward and their belly button's pointing straight towards the floor and their upper back is rounded and their head is dumped down and then they're lifting their chin. If they can't get into that position and have any sort of awareness of their body, then as soon as I dump them into a unilateral or asymmetrical pattern like you're talking about, it's not going to work for them any better than that bilateral pattern did. So if I'm trying to get someone to normalize their hip stability or normalize their scapular motion, I want those to be able to work together first. Mm -hmm. Can they do a pull up or chin up progression or even a pull down progression? Can they do a bilateral hip bridge? Can they load that? Can they do a squat or a hinge or a deadlift motion and make it look controlled, make it look even and make it look like we're getting a balanced feeling. Can they hold a plank? If they can't do those things, then that does need to prioritize itself in the program. Because if the first thing I do is throw one foot balancing on a BOSU ball, shaking a battle rope with the other hand and doing kettlebell snatches with the other hand. And if they can't do that, I'm kicking them out of the gym. I'm doing that person a massive disservice because the only thing I gave them was really good YouTube content. <laughs> so that right. wrap around to whatever you were saying, but the, the goal is if I can't see someone move well in that bilateral or even that bilateral controlled angle, I don't need to found, make their entire program revolve around asymmetry. I might put them in a half kneeling position if they're not great at a plank, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to put them in an offset front loaded back. Like I just went through a gate pattern and do some sort of push pull cable rotation because they're not going to be able to hold themselves there. Right. And what, one thing I want to bring up is about progressions. Oftentimes what I see is that you'll have somebody say doing a hanging leg race. Okay. But they can't really establish good posterior pelvic tilt. So they're really probably using a lot of hip flexor and they may even feel it more in their lower back. And, and they think that it's good to do because they've been told it's a really hard movement on especially emphasizing lower abs, right? The problem is that they didn't start off with something like the PVC perfect crunch that we talked about earlier where they could get into a good position and, and do that, right? So um, just for... Just for that example, I, I'll give one more, and I'd like to see what you think about these type of progressions. 
if I have somebody that, well, like uh, Alexis that was just in here. So guys, she's a collegiate runner that I work with. Um, Athlete plug. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and she, she's very, she's very, uh, very elite. She's a, she's a great runner, but, um, I've been working with her since she was just a kid in high school. So I, I know her really well. Um, but I'm not able to control the amount of volume that she does. So we say go strong to go, get strong to go long, right? For example. So I do see uh, and we're talking about going for more volume here, right? Going from 40 to 50 to 60 mile weeks, et cetera. So what I do see is that when we're going with maybe some of these type of um, volume um, type of progressions, where running more volume, more volume, which I'm not saying is a bad thing, but um, do we see that we start to have some compensations and do we even see we start to lose some of our capacities, right? Because, uh, for example, when you're running more miles every week, you don't have as much time for strength training, right? And it is very common to see that in the preseason, I might have somebody focusing on three days a week in season, they're down to two days a week, right? So we have to consider these things. But with her, I might have her do something that's a little bit more stable, like, um, the reverse hyper where she's grabbing onto a bench, she's in a prone position and she's driving her hips down into the bench, but then extending her, her hips. And through that position, we might have like a mini band around the, uh, around her, uh, her knees. And then she is trying to get abduction at the same time. Now we might be looking at doing something like that for, um, a hold of say 20 to 30 seconds, then do something like uh, a bird dog to follow up with that. And I notice that she'll have more coordination. Now, the the point I want to bring up about that, though, is you talk about motifidae. You, mo you mentioned that before. So, you know, we're we're building into maybe some of that uh, anticipatory response that we need for her running gait. So as her foot hits the ground and as she's going into hip extension, we want to have good control. We want to have anti-rotation for the most part of the spine, but we want to get in some movement through the lower spine, just not hyper extension. So I like to do stuff like this where we learn those kind of things more in that case um, with the um, the bird dog being after doing a hold like that, which is again, more using um, a basic position that she can control, right? So using that reverse hyper first to almost like get everything a little bit more stable and then going into something like a bird dog, I'll notice that she has more control now and she has more coordination. And then we get up from there and we can do some more sports specific type of work like doing ring drills where we're doing say a bound and we're trying to stick it. Okay. So that's just an example with her because she does tend to get some restrictions through her hips and TFL and, and so as, et cetera. So what do you think about those type of movements or is there a per type of progression you prefer, like bilateral, then asymmetrical and unilateral? Like what's, what's your progression on something like that with a, with a client? And you said, by the way, that your clients aren't elite runners. Most people listening um, aren't, right? We all, we all can't be elite. So You're you're all you elite out there. That? Listen, you're all elite. You're <laughs> all great. Um, so I think a little bit of kind of what you're talking about 
is an idea of activation. And when we look at stabilization concepts, it's not always about how strong you are. For anyone that wants to talk a little bit about the difference in anatomy, we talk about muscles that are stabilizing by nature and they tend to be your more aerobic driven muscles, things that can go for a very long time. And then you have your power production type of muscles and those are your beach bodies, right? Those are your, those are your pecs and your lats and your glutes and your biceps and your triceps. Like those, those are designed to actively flex and extend and generate power and generate torque. And although we can make an argument that the glute acts as a stabilizer, in reality, what we want is those deep rotators of the hip to be working in conjunction with the internal rotate, the short internal rotators of the hip to keep us in line. We want it with that lateral glute muscles, your glute med and your glute min and your TFL to work with the longer adductors along the inside of the thigh to keep us stable left to right. And then we want, and those things are keeping, are active and stabilizing the joint. Then, and of course our core, cause that's the whole conversation that we're having here. Then those big power development muscles, your quads and your glutes and your calves, you can generate this torque because you're not having to use them to control the system. So let's take a look at that reverse hyper, which I use a reverse hyper in a lot of different ways. I will use it even with some segmental lumbar extension if I have people that are really flat and rounded out there. But it can be a great tool for bilateral activation of the hamstring and the glute, especially if you put them into kind of that frog abduction. And you can get that. That's a great variation there, that frogger. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're... And you can even, and you can do that different ways too. You could do straight legged bridge, right? You could put your heels on a box and, and lock your legs out and then have that long lever straight extension or multiple different ways. But your goal is that you're not building someone's massive strength in that movement. What you're trying to do is get the muscles that you want to help stabilize the pelvis on, dialed up, right? It, you there's there could be an argument if you're just neurally stimulating them that you could just slap all those muscles a lot and get those to kind of come online and then go do a movement who cares how you do it you can foam roll it and get there but we want to get those to turn on because if they're on then the body says this is what i'm going to use right now it's almost a pre-fatigue i'm going to fatigue these a little just by getting them going so then my body goes here's where i'm going first can i say real quick that's also to me, really important point is that when when we're doing a program and priming up for the main work set, so we're doing work up sets, before we get to our top sets, before we get to the heavier loads, we're doing some activation there. So we might do that core four movement where we're holding with 20 seconds max tension, but just a round of that. A lot of times we'll just do just enough. And I... I if we do anything that's to fatigue or that's even to failure, we do it at the end, right? And so that's just something I want to bring up because I see uh, sometimes that people are doing like, um, you know, a hundred uh, curls, right? In, in other words, uh, like crunches, right? 
and then they're going to go and do something heavy, right? And I, I think that's an important pro- point you brought up is know what you're training for. Uh, understand that you're trying to prime things up before uh, you do something that's more de- demanding on the entire system. And that is, that's the why behind that so that you have better mobility for, say, the squat or for your run. So before I go on my run, I do just a little bit of activation, but I never feel like it's to pass like maybe a six or a seven at the most effort wise. I don't go to an eight, nine, 10, um, because you want to have that feeling of, of good activation, but you don't want to go to, to failure there. Now, again, uh, you get done with your run or whatever. And if you, if you want to maybe progress that a little bit to get stronger in that area, then pick up more sets on that and go to failure then, right? Yeah. I I also think that these activation drills get misconstrued as, and this is not so much in the running world, but maybe a little bit, they get misconstrued as this isolator. And we talk, we've been talking a lot about glute activation, but it's, to me, that falls well within the scope of core control as well, right? I know... I saw a video the other day of a local trainer pitching their program and they had a Are you talking about me? Yes, actually it was a it was a run readiness video. <laughs> um and they had a basically a mini band. They had the cloth elastic hip circle band and they said in their in their gym if it's whatever they called it. They called it their BFF. And once that's on, it never comes off. And for anyone that has ever (laughs) used a band assisted or a band resisted uh, activation tool, like a hip circle, Mark Bell's hip circle, or now any of the knockoffs, or they're just the, you know, the, the red, the rubber mini bands, they're just a loop elastic band and you're working against that resistance. And the whole point anyone had ever developed with this thing is to just help get things to come on. You're not trying to build these massively hypertrophied glute med muscles so that you have what a lot of people like to call side booty. Okay. (laughs) So if your entire workout revolves around having this heavy duty band around your knees, your squat pattern is going to suck. Your motion, your range of motion is probably going to suck and you're not going to benefit the same way as you would from just getting those things to come on and then doing the foundational movement. If you're squatting that day, whether it's a goblet squat or a hex bar squat or something like that, just, just do the exercise, use the band to go, okay, Hey, I feel it. I got a burn going in my hips. I got all those things feel like they're working. I got, I did my planks in between. I am my body's getting tight and now it's my strength day and I've got four exercises and I'm hex bar deadlifting and I'm not going to shove a mini band around my knees to do it. I'm just going to bend down and pick the damn bar up and then put it down. And I'm expecting that if the run readiness program had prepared <laughs> me with my right, with the right activation drills, then when I go to do that deadlift, the right muscles are going to work and I'm going to be training my core in this integrated fashion. And I'm going to be training my hips and my hamstrings, and I'm going to be training my upper back. And so when those muscles are trained to, if I'm a strength day to fatigue, or if I'm just doing maybe a little 
pregame, you know, mini, mini workout. And then I'm going to go for a run. Maybe I'm getting myself up to 60, 70% effort. I want to get the most out of that. I don't need all these little baby tools to get me turned on because those are the ones making me stronger. They're not, they're getting us ready. They're getting us primed. They're getting us activated, whatever word you want to use. And then we're training. And when we train, we train. And when we run, we run. How many people do you have that put a mini band around their knees and then go for a two mile run? <laughs> I mean, that sounds dumb, right? But someone it's out probably there, next. someone out there is doing it and they're putting the band on and they're going for a run because they think I'm getting better glute activation when I run with it. You know what I'm thinking, Ryan, next time you're on, we should just talk about just, just really honestly, like talk about the myths out there, talk about exposing some of this stuff that's going on because there's so much of the influencers and, and influencing out there that we just, we see it and we believe it. We think it's probably uh, something that we should be doing because it's online somewhere. And now we live in this day and age where people behind these programs don't necessarily have any real experience. I mean, there's people putting out programs with zero experience training people and they're putting they together look whole good, programs. Matt. They look good. <laughs> exactly. As long as they have these, right? As long as they have good aesthetics, you know, who cares, right? Um, but I do want to just, well, we'll finish with this. You're talking about mind-body connection, which is, uh, of course, part of what I like to make sure that I'm focused on before I go out for my run. And I'll tell you why I had that tree trauma, which caused a lot of hamstring tendinopathy type of issues. And I mean, for years and years and years, I, I dealt with hamstring pain when I tried to run. Right. So, um, I can, I, I can say that I'm probably 90% of the time hams, hamstring pain free. Okay. And, and I'm talking about, uh, my more proximal area of my hamstring at the origin, right? So just under the crease of my butt. Um, I don't have as, as big of a crease under my butt as Ryan, but I have one. Yeah. And just just there is, is where I can still uh, feel it, probably, again, about 10% of the time. And sometimes, yes, it's I came off of, um, right now I'm trying to, my first goal, break a five-minute mile, right? Just as a, a first goal for the year. And, you know, there's more speed work involved and, and that can make me a little bit more vulnerable. But most of the time, I can just trace it back to, did I do some mind-body connection type of movements to get myself stacked in a better position? So when I do that first, then I think that I have a much better result and I don't have the same type of inflammation and issues that when I just kind of rush out the door and just get in a quick run. And I can be guilty of that. There's times when I will get out the door or I'm here at the gym and I've been podcasting with people like you take up way too much of my time. And then I try to go run the mountains real quick before I have to go meet somebody or go, uh, you know, uh, go to my next appointment. And I will skip some of my uh, preparation work. And that's a that's a no, no. So I think just we'll finish with this. But um, what's what's your thoughts on that? This this um, you know mind body connection, I know, is what you were talking about before. And of course, I completely agree. Like these hip circles were not meant to max us out. And we're, we're just we're just looking at it as being a good primer, good activator. Um, but do you think there are um, movements or are priming progressions that 
should always be a staple in programming versus just um, slapping your quads and saying, okay, that's, you know, that made me aware and I can just go and do it. You know, do you know what I'm getting at? I, I do. And I think you're right. And I think it depends on the athlete. I think that a lot of people can benefit from a routine because there's nothing negative about it, right? Once you establish that these three drills are going to get me run ready, right? Maybe you have an athlete and they just have this kind of glute amnesia concept where they just don't connect to their glute activation and they use a lot of hamstring or they use a lot of lower back, you know, or you have an athlete that doesn't rotate, you know, at all. And they're just locked down through the thoracic spine and everything's getting into lumbar extension. You have those drills that you look at and say, Hey, this is your motion drill, or this is your control drill. This is, they're all some version of activation. But I think when you're talking about this mind body connection, the mind part is really the essential to that. Because if I have everything working, if all the muscles are doing what they're supposed to be doing, I don't really have to think about it as much, right? I just go, okay, my mind body connection to a big lift is, okay, everything's working, get hyped up, do whatever I'm gonna do, get tight, do my movement, right? If I'm getting, you know, if my body's ready and I'm gonna go for a run, and it's a, you know, I'm doing a four mile training run and I'm working at a 90%, you know, I'm really getting after it. Body's ready, mind's ready. I know what I'm going for and I go. So these activation drills have to be connected to your brain because if, and I, this, I'm sure you have seen this and I have clients that fall victim to this every single day. They walk in the door, they see the drills that they're supposed to do and they see someone else they know and they're both sitting on the ground doing glute bridges, talking about whatever <laughs> they did yesterday or this weekend, right? Yeah. Have no concept of whether they feel glute activation, whether they they could, you see their ribs kicking up in the air and you see their lower backs overworking and they're up on their toes and they've got a lot of calf and they're like, okay, hey Matt, uh, I did all my activation drills, what's next? And then you know they're not ready. They were not connected to that. Right. And this mind connection of like, okay, what is the education component, right? What is my intention? Hmm. This drill, I need to feel this working because I've never felt it. Right. I always feel my hamstring. Okay. So I'm going to intentionally really squeeze, or I'm going to use that band to help me cue those tissues to come on, to just come online. Okay. Oh, I feel that. Okay, great. Hold that. Five seconds, good, let it go, bring it back up, hold it. And by the end of that, you're not even thinking about it. It's just, it's already there. I'm gonna do some sort of, you know, plank drill. What do I feel? Well, I'm in my lower back and I'm, my head's tucked down and I can see my toes because I'm looking underneath me. Okay, well, that's not connected. What am I trying to elicit in that plank? Well, this is the position I'm gonna be in when I'm running. This is an upright, erect posture. So I need the glutes active. I need the rib cage down. I need the head drawn into a neutral position. I need the scapulas not over protract or retracted, but just set somewhere in the middle. Thoracic spine in neutral. They have to know what that feels like first. And they've got to be connected to it. Because the moment that they go to get out of there and go do something else, the brain has to have connected to the movement. 
And if they didn't connect to it, it looked like exactly what they're going to look like when they go for their run or they do their squat or they do their bench press or whatever it is they're doing that day. They mimicked it. As soon as they came out of that plank, their position didn't all of a sudden look magical when they were out running. Their head was dumped forward. Their arms were rolled. Their glutes were off. Their ribs were flared. And they go, God, my, I really didn't feel that good. I don't think those activation drills are working, right? So the connection is less about what's going on during the workout, although it matters, but it's more about I need to connect to what I need to be active to do this workout correctly. Right. <laughs> Right. And that's, as you know, I refer to this as athletic anchoring, right? Athletic anchors are part of that, that, that preparation, but really the mind body connection. I like the way that you said that this is part of the process of giving you a ritual to get ready to also get into a better position for your goal, for your sport, for better movement. And if you just kind of go through the motions you haven't really prepped yourself. You haven't primed yourself. And then you're wondering why something hurts, right? When you get out there and you, well, I did all of my protocol. I love, I love that. That's a great way to, to, to uh, finish this conversation is what you are doing. Guys, focus on it. Do it well. Don't waste your time. It's about putting in good priming, good preparation, and then you get to go do the work with a little bit better activation. Wouldn't you say, Ryan? I agree. I think the the simple term is earn it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You have to earn the right to go do something. Just because you're maybe a fast runner doesn't mean that you've earned the right to run fast. Right. So right. if you see someone that is just more likely to cause damage than accelerate, that person has to understand I need to move better to do this. So I have to step back. I've got to connect, I've got to activate, I've got to get strong, and then I can earn the right to go back to there. Because then once I'm there, I'm not there anymore, I'm past it. Right. I, am, I am now at the next level and everybody wants to level up. Everybody wants to be elite. Everybody that's elite wants to be more elite. And you can't get there by doing the same thing. So you have to connect and you've got to accept that if I'm going to do this, I'm going to tune into it and I'm going to earn it. Yeah. And you know what? Just on that note, people who really take their protocol seriously, people who really follow these rituals consistently, it's not a coincidence over 20 years of time, I can tell you that there's no prevention of injury, right? But those people, we tend to see less incidents of injury with them. And when I am talking about athletes that are racing in season, it's always the same thing. The athletes that I, that I'm looking at their programs and they don't, they don't mark that they even did their protocol. You don't really know what they're doing versus the athlete that not only marks off what they're doing, but has some notes about how they're feeling that, that latter athlete, I almost never hear any problems from, right? Versus the the athlete that's like, oh yeah, I've been doing it. I mean, I haven't been documented, but I do do it. And uh, yeah, I don't know, like my back is really starting to bother me though. So what do I do, right? And it's like, so it's so common for me to see that pattern. So take your movement seriously, guys, because it works. And that's, that's kind of, again, where I think of calling this stuff uh, more of an athlete anchoring so that you have a little bit more 
to build yourself into um, a harder progression or a harder strength progression or, or running progression that day, that week, that month. You're not just throwing yourself uh, into the mix and then hoping that you survive, right? That's kind of how I think of it. Ryan, thank you so much, man. I I think that uh, you are going to be back next month, right? Can I convince you to come sure. back? I, I suppose so. All right. And we're going to, I'd like to talk about uh, fitness myths and some do's and don'ts. I think that'd be fun. Something maybe a little bit more fun, a little lighter. We're going to make fun of uh, some people. Okay. So myths um, and legends. Yeah. They're legends. They're myths. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's, there, there are some concepts there that I would like to kind of delve into with you because, um, there's there it does anger me a little bit that some of these influencers out there are giving the kind of information that really can hurt us not only not help us but can even hurt us and i think that's a good uh, subject to kind of go on and talk about a little bit more because we need to be educated about what we should be following and, and why we should be following it right so let's talk about that next time agreed deal that'd be good okay and then ryan where can people find you how can people communicate with you or or hire you what what's your deal where do you get found buddy me uh you can find me on the performance edu website it is performance du fitness.com or you can track me down on the instagram at movement mechanics with an x yeah man all right guys thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time